Welcome to West Virginia and Commonplace. Today I have with me Skip. And Skip, I need help with your last name real quick. Mondragon. Mondragon. He is a wrestling enthusiast and he is also, also something more powerful than anything um, that anyone could be at this moment, and that's an author. Um, he's a person that focuses in on mental health. He's a person that um, he, he embodies a good spirit because anybody that, that wrestles, and I'm going to say this real quick before I go through the full introduction, and we're talking about amateur wrestling. We're talking about folk style, freestyle, record roaming. It doesn't matter. It's a discipline. It is a individualized sport, but it's a, it has a team aspect. And each individual has to win, has to somehow to take losses in certain instances uh, for this team to actually point out or win a meet. That's something that I want to establish from the get-go because I know a lot of people, some people think of professional wrestling, and that is not the case. So, Skip, please introduce yourself to, or tell everyone about yourself. Don't introduce yourself. Tell everyone about yourself. Um, Let's get some insight to you, and then we will talk about this book. Awesome. Well, thank you, JR. I am the third of eight children. I oh. have five, uh, or rather four younger brothers, a younger sister and two older sisters. We grew up under meager means. Unfortunately, my father came back from the Korean War a broken man. He was quite ill. My aunt, his older sister and my older cousin say the man that went to war was not the man that came back. He suffered from alcoholism and what I'm sure was PTSD and bipolar disorder based on the symptoms. He would become violent when he would drink. And I, I have basically no recollection of things before the age of seven. So it was a very traumatic childhood. But my uh, elder sister, Roma, tells us that when my dad would come home, we'd run and hide because we didn't know which dad was going to greet us, the kind, loving, gentle dad or the angry, violent dad who was horribly abusive to my mom and didn't really see that abuse and wasn't until I was into my 30s when I asked about my dad did my mom disclose how violent he was threatened her with a knife to her throat, kick, punch, knocked out teeth, um, was, was horrible to her, threatened to throw her out of a second story window at one point. And yet she never bad-mouthed my dad. When I was growing up, she would simply say, your dad is ill, your dad is ill. And unfortunately my dad died at the age of 34. So I grew up under those circumstances uh, I am a physician. The oh, yes, proud, doctor, doctor. Uh, the proud father of five adult children, have four grandchildren, married to my sweetheart of 39 years. Whoa. And we uh, spent 26 and a half years in the Army. I was deployed 37 months uh, uh, during that time and 30 months in combat zones. Their share a something in common with uh, JR and that we're both longtime wrestlers and yes. wrestling enthusiasts. We could talk, I told JR before we started, we could talk for hours about our, our love, enthusiasm for wrestling. 
And we'll probably get into, I know we'll get into some of this because it plays a big part of my life and what shaped me. Okay, and one thing I like that you highlighted, and, and I want my audience to, or it's mine, this is your audience, it's everybody's audience. Um, I, I like that, that the story that your mother said about your father because a lot of people don't realize these things and, and, and I became more uh, influent into these areas of, of, of uh, mental health not being diagnosed and mental health was actually taboo. My mother um, was born in the 50s. And my mom told me, you know, growing up in the 60s and 70s, it was something that was kind of shunned. It was kind of not thought of. And then you talk to people from latter generations, you know, mental health is a, is a focus now with what we do. So your dad not being diagnosed or being taken care of, uh, that's a sad event. And, and I really uh, feel bad for him and you in the instance that he had to go through this without any help. And uh what, what I'm trying to get at with the audience is, is that, you know, when you hear someone tell you a story about the past like this, you really have to be accepting of the fact that there truly was not any help at that time. No one reached out to take care of people like that. They just let them well, fall by the wayside, correct? Well, he did receive some help. He was in and out. He, he was receiving care from the VA, the Veterans Administration. Okay. However, they diagnosed him, my mother said, with schizophrenia. Oh. And I think the reason that was, was because he, it sounds like he would become psychotic. And psychosis is when you lose contact with reality, that you cannot discern what's real and what's not real, what people would call crazy. And uh, because of the bipolar, that I believe he would become psychotic and therefore they didn't understand bipolar. They didn't even have that. It wasn't even an entity back in the fifties and early, early sixties. It was not a diagnosis that they had. And so a lot of things got grouped under schizophrenia. And so that's what they diagnosed him at. And they had a very limited array of medications that they could treat with during those days. So he was ill. Plus you compound that with the PTSD and the alcoholism that there were many factors. That's that a lot of pressure. Working against my father. Yes. Okay. So at age seven, you start remembering things. Right. What's, what's the first thing that came comes to thought at seven years old? The first memories that I that I have is we had moved from Denver and to Trinidad, where my mother lived. Uh, so Denver, Colorado. Well, Trinidad, Colorado. Okay. So from Denver to Trinidad, which is at the southern part of Colorado, not too far from the New Mexico border. And there I am with my cousins and my older sisters, and we are on this front lawn of this very large three-story house where we moved into, it was on Baca Street, I remember. <laughs> and we are out there on a summer day, it was hot, blue skies, a few scattered clouds, but very hot day, and we're pulling weeds out on the front lawn, and they bought Cokes, these ice cold Cokes that were sweating 
you know, on the bottles and they tasted so good. Oh my gosh. I can still taste how good those, <laughs> that, that Coke tasted on that day when we were laughing and talking, but that's really where my, my memories start at the, at the age of seven. Okay. Now we'll speed up a little bit in life. It, it seems like from what you're telling your mom was very influential in your life. Is that correct? Yes. I tell people that I was privileged to grow up with my three greatest heroes, my abuelita, my little grandma, my mom, who I call my mother dear, and my daddy, my stepfather. So I was a blessed man. Okay. Okay. Now let's dive right into it. How did you get into wrestling? Because everyone has a story about how they got into wrestling. And, and, and um, I've never really thrown that out there on the podcast. So mine's real short, so I'll tell it real fast. And then we'll go into yours. Um, basically, my father passed away when I was eight years old, okay? So I didn't have a father figure. My mom was great, but she wasn't a father figure. You know, there's right. a difference there. That's right. And, and, and um, there was a man named Bill Hudson. His Both of his sons wrestled. They were lower weight class than me. I was always a heavier guy. <laughs> and... um. <laughs> One day he seen me, I, I played soccer, I played football, I did other things, but I didn't excel at those. And um, one day he said, go with me to wrestling practice. I didn't think anything of it. Um, and my mom was, my mom is a, was always very enthusiastic. So she took me to, um, I forgot, uh, we had some kind of, what was it? I don't even know the name of that sports store, but some sports store. I went in there and I asked a guy about wrestling shoes. He showed me a pair of Nikes. I put them to the side. Uh he handed me a pair of green and black Asics. They were um, John Smith's because John Smith had a blue, white, and red pair, but they were John Smith's. That's the first wrestling shoe I owned. What? Got some random knee pads. Actually, I think I got volleyball knee pads for practice. And I, had, <laughs> you know, I had decent knee pads, but the volleyball knee pads worked out, and I went and started wrestling, and I never looked back. Whoa. So tell me how your story went. I was typically the smallest kid in my class growing up. So I was small, we moved frequently, I was shy, I was awkward, both socially and certainly athletically. I didn't know how to kick, I didn't know how to catch, I didn't know how to run, jump, <laughs> you, you name it. I can remember in fourth grade, our teacher would take us out to the playground and approximately every quarter or so during the year, at least that often, she tests, we'd have to be tested. Boys on chin-ups and girls on bent arm hang. And I would just dread for my name to be called. And then skip, she'd call my name. And I'd jump up to the smaller, you know, the lowest bar. And I'd grunt and I'd kick and I'd pull with all my might. And I couldn't do one. Oh. You know. <laughs> So you'd listen to the snickers and the laughter and the prodding of classmates. We'd go out and teams would be chosen during recess. And invariably, I was the last child chosen by default. And then the team would say, ah, why does he have to be on our team? Oh, oh. Be it football, be it basketball, be it baseball, be it tetherball. Tetherball? I was, I was horrible. <laughs> Could you play some kickball at least? Yeah, I was bad at kickball. Oh, oh. <laughs> like I said, I couldn't kick, I couldn't catch, I could barely run. <laughs> <laughs> so in uh, 
and and then being small, moving quick, you know, moving frequently, uh, being shy, being awkward. Uh, it was a new kid on the block, and I was fodder for bullies. So I was bullied throughout my childhood. And in eighth grade, we my mother had remarried, and we moved back. At that time, we were living in New Mexico, and that's another story in itself. But my mother remarried. We moved back to Colorado, and went out for wrestling. And okay. it was the first time I had this sense, I think I can do this. I know I can do this. And I, I think I can be good at this. No, I think I can be really good at this. I made the varsity team at 85 pounds, the lowest weight class. Ooh. Didn't win a match all year. <laughs> However, the bullies left me alone. In ninth grade, I was the best wrestler in that room. However, I didn't win a match all year. Why? I couldn't sleep the night before matches. I would toss and turn and uh, didn't get a wink of sleep. So I was emotionally and physically exhausted come the next day and it showed in my wrestling. However, <laughs> the summer afterwards, there was a state freestyle tournament and I entered Won my first match, won my second match, won my third match, won my fourth match. Going for the championship, and I won. Uh-oh. And afterwards, my coach said, you beat the kid that won this tournament last year. And that just spurred my determination all the more went on and won the varsity spot next, the next year for high school, wrestled high school at 112 pounds throughout my high school career, two-time district champ, state okay. runner up, won many state freestyle tournaments, placed in a few, uh, two national freestyle tournaments and ended up as a honorable mention All-American uh, for high school. Oh man, so you had a decorated career. Yes, sir. And one thing that I'll tell the audience, it's a certain discipline in wrestling. I don't explain it. You just have to be there for it. And I think you kind of know what I'm saying. <laughs> it, when, once you, when you start wrestling, wrestling humbles you. Yes. And, when you. and when you win and even when you lose, there's always a lesson learned there. And my coach put, used to put it with me like this. Uh, he said, you'll either learn a lesson or you'll be a lesson. <laughs> and so you won your tournament and you built the self-esteem, right? Yes. it. That's one of the life lessons of wrestling. It instills confidence in you and it changed my self-image. It helped reshape my self-image. Right. And with someone like me, I actually, I grew up with like a little bit of an ego. So when I got fairly well I just stuck to it and I knew I was so petty that I knew that I wasn't going to be good at football wasn't going to be good at this or that <laughs> so I would tell people that I've retired at like age 14 15 you know from these other things but now you go through wrestling um what was your biggest heartbreak because oh, everyone has a heartbreak in terms of wrestling yes my biggest heartbreak was the state finals my senior year I had set my sights on being a state folk style champion 
So we get to the state finals and I'm wrestling a, a kid by the name of Matt Martinez. I had wrestled him the year before and Matt beat me uh, in a duel meet. But I had wrestled his teammate, a state champion, the summer before at a state freestyle uh, tournament and I had beat his teammate. And Matt had scouted me. Unfortunately, I hadn't been scouting Matt that Matt scouted me, apparently. Matt stands about four foot ten. Yeah, he's about this wide. And he'd get down in this low squatting position. I mean low. And we get into the final match. And he's doing this with his hands the whole time and just moving around. And I never got a good shot on Matt to attack his legs. He escaped fairly quickly from me on the bottom. He rode me in those days, uh, you know, got riding time. He rode me about yeah. a minute and two seconds. So he got a point for riding time. And so I lost basically on two seconds of riding time. And I really hit that match for hundreds, hundreds, probably thousands of times, if not ten thousands of times until I was well into my 30s and finally could resolve and say, you know, I lost to a great warrior. I lost to a wrestler who wrestled a better match. And I had a good distinguished high school career and could go on uh, with that loss. But that loss was such a heartbreak because I felt that I had not only let myself down, but let my coaches down, let my teammates down, let my school down, let my community down and let my family down. So it, it was a, uh, something that affected me in many ways and it affected my confidence. And it only, and it took me really till the writing of my book that I have the insight that that affected my confidence so much that it took five years to really restore my confidence because of the impact of that loss, what that did to so, me. So that was a mess into your mid twenties. Yes. Yeah. That, so that, it, it correct. So I was seventeen when I lost that match. You also twenty two. So, that's that's right. that's really that's really traumatic in it to a degree. Yes, it was incredibly traumatic because I had I had sacrificed and like I worked because I didn't have those athletic skills so many other kids had. And I had determined I was going to outwork anybody. You might have more skill. You might have more speed. You might have more uh, skill in terms of technique. You might have more strength, but you are not going to work harder than me. And you will not outcondition me. I remember the quarterfinals of the state uh, that state tournament, I was wrestling a kid by the name of Bobby Lucero. He was from a school called Montrose. Montrose produced some great wrestlers. And I had wrestled a teammate of his, you know, summer before. Yeah. So I'm wrestling Bobby. And I was in this fog most of the match. And I'm losing. And I'm thinking as, you know, this match is going on, is this how it's going to end? Is this how it's going to end? And I was just out of it 
And somehow in third period, I managed to tie the match. And in those days, they would take, you know, you'd have a short break before overtime and you go to their respective corners with your coaches. And my coach, uh, Ken Larson and our Steve Bell was the assistant coach. So I'm there and Ken Larson is giving it to me. And we used to call it Ken uh, coach giving you the finger. So he's got his index finger and he's popping me in the chest. You better get your head in the match. You know, get with it. And everybody knew when coach was giving you the finger, he was not pleased with you. And so <laughs> I went out there in overtime and I destroyed Bobby. I mean, I just put it to him. And so we're shaking hands at the end of the match. And Bobby looks at me and he goes, Skip, you're really in good shape, aren't you? And I just kind of grinned and I said, yeah, I am. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now let's dive into this book. Let's dive into this book real quick because we did a little bit with the wrestling. Um, so what made you want to write a book? Because so many people in life, and this is something that I always try to get the audience to imagine with me, everyone has a story to tell. And we all figure a format to tell it. Some people are what we call folklores and they go around on uh, vacations and they go to reunions and they relive stories yes yes what made you decide to write this book well i when i was struggling with my depression and i was still in the early weeks of my recovery my brother chris my youngest brother who was an All-American at North Carolina State. He was a very heralded high school okay. wrestler in his own stead. He, he called me very excited because Franklin Graham had he held a Bible study in Raleigh, North Carolina. And Chris had attended with a group of other men. And the topic was suffering. And the gist of it was Franklin had shared that why do we think we as Christians should not have to suffer if Christ suffered so brutally upon the cross on our behalf. And with that, it changed my mentality because for nine months, I had been praying, Lord, Lord, please, please deliver me from this darkness. And over a period of two days, my prayers changed. And it was hinged on this verse that came to mind out of Philippians 3.10. Okay. Oh, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. I knew that verse. I have prayed that verse hundreds of times. But when I was suffering, I wanted deliverance. And then those two days, my prayer shifted from Lord please deliver me to Lord. What would you have me learn and how might he use it to help others? Okay. And so I began to jot notes down what I had learned and what I was learning with the intent that I was going to share it. At that time I was stationed at well, um, Eisenhower army, Me army medical center in Augusta, Georgia. And before I left, because that was my last year in the Army, okay. 
I asked to share with the staff at large. So my commander arranged it. I had a morning session, afternoon session in the auditorium, and I shared my story and I shared the lessons learned to encourage others that were struggling, go get help, to decrease that stigma related to it. I was a decorated soldier, 37 months deployed, 30 months in combat zones, a wrestler, a national, a national veterans wrestling champion at age 56. Whoa. So I, you know, I had some credentials. I was well-known Colonel throughout the hospital. And so people knew me, people knew who I was. And I was determined to tell my story, to open up and say, here's what happened to me. I'm a tough guy but I succumbed to this disease. And with that, then I began to look for other avenues to share. And it had this kind of in the back of my mind, well, what about a book? Well, the next year, 2015, I was watching a series of broadcasts through what's called transformation books, transformational books with Christine Closer, a woman who has a publishing company and helps authors bring their books to light. Well, she had a writing contest that I entered and with it came a publishing deal. I won. And with that, then we started working on the book. So really didn't start in earnest doing anything with a book. So I won the contest August of 2015. I was notified, but didn't do anything really with a book till 2016, January, I started doing some things. And then my book was published in February of this year. Okay. Now, look, let's go deep into something real quick. Because here's the thing that I always like to tell uh, my guests when they're on here. Because you're, when you write a book, there's a long, lengthy process to it. Really long. There's all kinds of steps to it. And there, and inside of that, there's a lot of things that, that uh, people that want to write books don't know and probably won't know because some people skip steps when they write books and some publishers, you know, don't say everything, you know, some companies are there just to grab money. So my question to you um, is this, after you won this contest, what was the first initial thing you put on paper after you had took all the little notes that you've been taking? How did you start your first book? That's a better way to ask it. Well, I, Follow this system that Christine had. I went then through there and writing a series of questions and doing this in detail, doing this in detail. Questions such as why, why do you want to write this book? How would this book change your readers? How will this book change you? How will this book change the world, how will this book change your business? And so answering those questions and then who is this book for? What are they like? And as much detail as I could put into those questions. So I spent a matter of weeks compiling that information. Then with that in mind, I began to go and write then on index cards, everything I could think of related to what might go into my book. 
And then I began to arrange those, what might be chapters, and then rubber banded each chapter there. And then I began to say, okay, how would I sequence this? And then try to put together something of a table of contents and say, okay. And then you start looking at who might give me endorsements and write those. So I began to reach out to uh, individuals for endorsements. I have an endorsement, for instance, as you uh, there from John Peterson, two-time oh, Olympic yes. uh, medalist, gold and silver. I'm good friends with John and have been for almost, wow, almost 20 years now from Jay Robinson, coach, uh, Olympian and coach from university, former coach from University of Minnesota. And so reaching out for endorsements, uh, this type of thing. And then it was working on the cover design. Yeah, which is amazing. Are, are going on. And actually that cover design was uh, a photo or, or rather a picture of my brother Duke, very talented, one of my younger brothers there, my second youngest, that he designed and then the graphic design artist took this and we decided how we were going to use it on the cover. So it was these steps taking place and then you began to put pen to paper, you know, hours and hours on the keyboard. And uh, I don't like that. Okay. And, you, and then you're working with your, your publisher for, for revision. So you do this and then they're sending you back things saying, well, do you like this interior? Send us what photos you might want to there. We can do four photos, send us the captions for the photos. And, and so it's just back and forth. You, you do it, and then they're sending you the manuscript and say, go through it, tell us, you know, if this is what you want. You're sending it back to your uh, editor. The editor is going through us. Well, you might consider changing this. I don't like this. This doesn't make sense. Please explain this. And so now you're going through the whole manuscript again and making those edits. So as in writing, we like to say the magic is in the editing. So we, we talk about a, a first, a S, basically a shitty first copy. Right, <laughs> first yeah. let's, let's just call that, it an essay. <laughs> yeah, that basically you're gonna cut out so much stuff, you're gonna change so much stuff, but you just gotta get it out on paper. You just gotta get it there and then you spend the process of revising it, revising it, revising it, revising it, and revising it over and over and over again to hone it so that you try to make it the best it can be. Okay. Now, in doing all that, when did you hit your first writer's block? Because people, you know, you, you get out here and you start funneling ideas and you you do the I, I take it back to uh middle school when we started writing more term papers and stuff like that <laughs> you know I, I assume that's similar to what you start off with right so you probably make a spider web or some type of way to do things where did you hit your first road oh goodness i had writer's block i don't know how many times where i'd get going and maybe not you know go to the go to things for weeks at a time saying uh and then I have to pick up and uh, we had what was called a 
book midwife uh, Carrie to read was her name <laughs> oh lovely lovely woman that was so patient and gracious and kind to me uh, skip how we doing there skip how we coming along <laughs> and it's like okay Carrie, and i get back and sometimes you know you're just staring here like uh and most important thing is when you hit that writer's block is that you just try to type even if it's just a word even if it's just a sentence just get yourself going and knowing that okay i can just put it in because i can always go back and revise it i can go go back and delete it if necessary but just get going again but i might go weeks and not write anything and then there might be times when i say okay i'm going to write for the next hour and three hours later i look at the clock and oh my gosh you know i just get lost in it and i just be going it's like wow you know it was just things would just flow okay okay i like the way that sounds now there's one thing that we didn't do in this uh podcast that that i probably should have asked earlier but we were fumbling through things and like i tell everybody i do an organic podcast so you never know what question's going to come up so i'm going to backtrack into the middle of things okay we, we told us you told us the story of how the first bit of depression came about i mean you had depression all the time but you told us about the state championship time but when did you officially come to terms with that hey i have a i have a problem with depression because I kind of skipped over that and I apologize, but that's the key key thing inside your book and inside everything that's brought you full circle to today. So what exactly happened? And this right here, like I, I always do um, in, in these conversations that I have with people, uh, we had a, a news magazine called 2020. You had Diane Sawyer, you had Barbara Walters, and you had John Stossel. And John Stossel, he was a, a, a comical character. We're not going to do any John Stossel here. So okay. we're going to go first with a Diane Sawyer question. When did depression hit you the hardest? And when did you accept that you had a problem? Okay. And I'm not going to call it an illness or a disease because I don't want to um, put, put tape around it any certain way. I'm just going to say a problem because we all see things differently when it comes to mental health. Correct? Well, I think we can call it an illness. It all is right, so we call it, all right. It is I just, illness. Just yes. wanted to see what you're comfortable with. Absolutely. It's 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 that. And for me, things started in the summer of 2013. It was about 18 months away from my retirement from the army. And when we retired from the army in the end of December 2014, that would be 26 and a half years in the army, I began to experience some insomnia. And I was working with a psychologist that was part of the resilience program for the army to specifically work on that. And then there were some events that took place in my department, some things there in our cath, uh, our cardiac catheterization lab and dialysis that affected our graduate medical education programs with our medical student, with the residents and then the medical students that would visit and do rotations and I took responsibility for this, but really I could not have foreseen this or done anything about it. But 
I was taking responsibility for this. So I'd sit there at night and ruminate on this and think, oh my gosh, it's affecting our, our residents. It's affecting those medical students that were gonna rotate with us. It's affecting patient care. And I began to feel guilt and, and shame. And then in a matter of months that uh, then I was having surgery. And so I had surgery on my pellet, my, uh, uh, on my gums rather, they took some, a graft. And with that surgery, then I had complications. And with, with surgeries, it disrupts your whole routine. I couldn't exercise. I couldn't eat the way I like to eat. It further impacted that insomnia. And so all these symptoms got worse, the guilt, the shame, the insomnia, and then my cognition started getting impacted. I was having trouble remembering things. I could remember a conversation five minutes before. I was having trouble recalling medical syndromes and things like this. It got to the point in early fall of 2013 that I thought I was suffering from early onset dementia. Whoa. That I actually went to the chief of behavioral health and, and said, I'm concerned here. And he arranged for some psychometric testing to ensure that. And they tested and said, no, we don't think you have that. All you test fine and certainly above in some levels, other levels lower than we think you might should be due to the, you know, the level of your education and so forth. But we think that's related to your stress and to your insomnia. So that was a relief. And then things just got worse. And then the mood started getting worse. I started isolating myself. And then these negative thoughts, you know, you don't deserve to be in the army. You don't deserve to be a colonel. You've let your family down. You've let the army down. You've let your department down. Those just started playing like an endless loop in my mind. December, I have another surgery, this time on my knee. Whoa. And so you're barely, you know, you get recovered there and that change and all your routine. And now you recovered, you're starting to recover your normal exercise routine and diet routine and so forth. And now I have another surgery and that once again, disrupts exercise. And I've always relied on exercise. And if you had asked me before all of this, had I been an anxious person, I would have said, absolutely not. But what I realized in retrospect is I relied on exercise, intense exercise for that matter, to deal with my anxiety. And now you take that away from me. Now you take away that identity. I'm a tough guy, you know, in terms of being able to exercise and outwork younger soldiers, younger men, and not get on the mats with the wrestlers I would coach and so forth. And so that self-identity is affected. My routines are affected again. And by the end of December, I remember after Christmas telling my wife, because I had complications again after this surgery, that I was utterly and totally exhausted physically, mentally, and socially. I still could not put it together. So we get into 2014. And I seem to have a rebound where I seem to improve for a short while. And then things began to, you know, after that short rebound, once again, quickly go down. And then in March, I have a third surgery to resurface my skin due to some scars from burns that I suffered as a young child. 
and then the bottom falls out. So all those symptoms are getting worse that I described, plus the body aches that came with it, you know, the old wrestling injuries, the osteoarthritis, uh, just from overworking, you know, the gazillion miles I ran on hard payment, the tens of thousands of push-ups and thousands of chin-ups and all those things that I, you know what I'm talking about, yes, uh, yes. that I did over the years. Now <laughs> you feel it, oh gosh. You know, that was made worse. And all those other symptoms just played out worse, got worse and got worse. And to the point on April 17, 2014, I went into my office at work and I had a big, beautiful corner office, one of the best offices in all the hospital yeah, for the chief of department of medicine had that office. And two, two walls of the office were panels of were basically big windows and closed the shades, turned off the lights, locked the door, turned off my pager and phones, turned off the office phone, crawled under my desk. And I was in a fetal position. And for four hours, I was asking myself, Skip, what are you doing? How did you get here? And I kept asking myself that question. And then I slowly began to put the pieces together. And those symptoms that I was having, starting back in the summer. And I became this observer participant. And finally, I admitted, skip your depressed. Go get help. Okay, man, that, that's amazing. I, I like the self-diagnosis and the self-care, even though it was a lot that you had to go through to get there. That's amazing you did that. And what you won't understand today that I'm going to tell you, you just help somebody. Hmm. Somebody's going to listen to this podcast. Somebody, because this may be a two-part podcast. <laughs> we never know, <laughs> um, depending on the length of it. But you just help somebody. Like you took your story, and I know that this is inside your book also, so we won't go deep into every single thing that's in your book because we won't be able to buy the book, uh, and uh, we'll plug your book in just a moment. <laughs> but that is inspirational right there. You actually had enough gumption to take it upon yourself to self-diagnose and then go get the proper diagnosis, correct? Yes. And from there... That's where the book came from. And I, I believe that it was other steps that went on with it that we'll get you to discuss in just a moment. Mm -hmm. um, so listeners, the thing that takes, the thing that I want you to definitely take away from that is, is that when you need help, sometimes it actually has to come from within. It can't be a family member to tell you this. It was directly you in that office, in the fetal position. Well, after you got out of it, you know, doing that. All right, so let's skip a little bit uh, ahead. So you decide to go get help, and you get help. And with depression, um, a lot of people that I talk to about it, they believe that it's something that uh, comes and goes. And I do believe it comes and goes at different periods because we're not going to always going to be on a high, and we're going to be in the middle. And sometimes we plateau for a long time, and then we fall or we get higher, you know. So after this instance, 
when did you fall again? This is the Barbara Walters question. When did you fall again? Mm, because that's a great question. Because yeah. the thing about it is, is that we always tell the 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 downfall, and then we talk about the the triumph where we come back up and we rise from the ashes like a phoenix. But we never talk about that second part. The second part always gets thrown away, and we we're like, oh, after I fell once, I tripped, but I never fell again. Yes. And that's true in every story that we hear. So when did you right. fall again? Then, then I had another nadir, not nearly as significant, but we had retired from the army. We were on transitional leave. We arrived here back in Texas on December the 3rd, December the 3rd. 2014 and we're in great spirits and so forth but then over the next month to six weeks well no actually it was by christmas time my mood again had declined i that guilt uh trouble sleeping the sense of you know lack of confidence uh, indecision negative thoughts playing over in my mind, they're plaguing me again. Now I left the army still on medicines and I'm, I'm still on medicines to maintain the stability. Uh, see a psychiatrist uh, every six months or so and have been seeing a therapist. But that being said, I dropped down and that took a period of months there to climb out of that probably three four months uh, there before you know started feeling better certainly by may june time frame i was feeling much better again okay and thank you thank you for sharing that because a lot of people don't and won't tell that part of their story because you know like we all like I said, we all have that up and down. So from that period on, you, you've written this book. Your book uh, is in part, it's self-care. And it's also you helping people. And you help people through your wrestling and professing your faith and through your faith. And I commend you on that. And, I, and the world needs that because um, this one thing that, that's a selling power that I get from some people is that, oh, I can help you all day. I can help you all day with this, this, and that, and do this and that. But if you do that and have no morality behind it, mm. or you don't have a sense of a morality code with that, what kind of help are you really giving someone? Mm. And with what you're doing, there's that morality. And, and sometimes, you know, when, like I'm looking from the outside in, I can see all these aspects. Mm. So how does that feel to know that you're helping people with morality at the same time as with depression and all that other stuff? Because from your wrestling discipline, you had to get a bit of morality out there because you couldn't be, there's nothing dirty about wrestling beyond, <laughs> be, there's nothing dirty beyond wrestling, beyond how good you shoot and how good you sprawl. <laughs> In all honesty. Well, that's a wonderful perspective that I've never had anybody share, JR, in terms of the, the morality. And I thank you for that. I appreciate You're that. You're welcome. You're welcome. But it's, It's something that I'm called to because when I made that change of 
perspective from Lord, please, please deliver me to what would you have me learn and how might I use it to help others? Then I received that calling that I was compelled to share my message that I couldn't do it otherwise, that there were individuals that needed that. My wife and I have a saying, don't waste the pain. And so when I went through this, I knew based on that, that, that God wanted me to share, that I needed to share this message to help others, that there were many, many, many men out there. And because knowing the mentality of men, we're tough, we can do it. Definitely. We're built Ford tough. Some of you are built Chevy tough, and some of you are built big Dodges. <laughs> that we can, I can do this on my own. That attitude that we are reluctant to admit we need help, much less seek help. And so I tell people, and one of my signature speeches is even tough guys get depressed. You're not a wimp if you need help. You're not weak if you seek help. And that's one of the things that I try to tell others. And so I have that calling on my life. Similarly, as I was called to be a physician, I was called to be a soldier. I have this calling and I can't do otherwise. And that's commendable. And, and the thing here, like, like once again, like I, I keep reiterating this, uh, you know, with, with all this about you and with the discipline from wrestling, um, what was your first outreach? What was your first outreach after, after you had written your book? Because I know you go on speaking engagements and different things like that. What was the first outreach? What was the first person? I know we don't, we don't name people because of reasons, but who came up to you and told you that you were making an impact in their life after all this? That's interesting. Let me think back. Let me think back. Well, I think it was my youngest brother, actually. He read the book and he actually wrote the foreword, as you may be aware of the book. Yes, most definitely. And he called and said, Skip, oh, I'm getting so much out of this. And thank you for, for writing this. And I've shared it with others. And they're telling me how much it's helping them. I've shared it with this person. I've shared it with that person. And I've shared it with another person. I've read this portion to somebody and they can relate to this skip and it's helping them. And he's told me that repeatedly since I've written the book and since it's been published rather. And he shared that with me that he shared it with multiple people and read portions to multiple people. Chris works as a fitness trainer. He oh. owns his own uh, gym there in Raleigh, North Carolina, has been in the fitness business for over 30 years. And so he has clients and comes in contact with these folks day in and day out. And he's been in Raleigh since his college days. So he knows a lot of people. And he's been featured on TV there as Coach Chris at various times. 
And so people know him well, and he's done a lot of training and, you know, various athletes and kids that he helped coach when they were young and now they're young adults. And with that, you know, had a lot of influence on people and knows a lot of people in the community <laughs> and reaches out to them. Okay. okay. With that, he's the one that has shared the most and was the first one to share with me. And that right there, that has to bring you some type of joy there. Um, yeah. Because like, like I noticed, um, just with any guests I have on here, um, I get these messages and like when your yours airs um, all, all over those millions of different platforms, somebody will come back to me and I won't ever be able to let you hear, but they'll tell me how you touched them. It's yeah. always the first person that, and, and, and they always ask me how to get in touch with people. And on these podcasts, uh, there's two things that we do. We like to plug things and uh, get established information out there. And then the show notes uh, audience, I'll definitely make sure that we have all of Skip's information so you can get in contact with, with him. But I need you to do me a favor real quick, Skip. I need you to give the audience how they can reach you and where they can find your book, the formats for your book, and uh, how they can reach you for speaking engagements. Great. Well, thank you, JR. You can get a hold of me there at www.wrestlingisnotforwimps.com. Again, www.wrestlingisnotforwimps.com. And my book, Wrestling is Not for Wimps. You can find it on Amazon, both in a paperback and an ebook. You can find it on Ingram Sparks. You can find it Barnes and Noble uh, in terms of their catalog. So these are some of the places that you can Google books. You can find it there also. And it's another place you can find this book that really intrigued me. And you didn't mention it, but I'm going to mention it. What's that? It's one place that you that you can find your book that really intrigued me. Walmart. Walmart.com, your book is listed. Oh, well, I wasn't aware of that. Hey, you just shared yeah. something new to me. <laughs> when, when, I, when I seen your book there, I was like, wow. You know, um, before you even come on the podcast, and this is not to take away from any other author or anybody else that's ever been on here. To be on Walmart.com, you got to be doing something. Oh, great. I'm delighted to hear that because it's it's a message that people need to hear. It's a message that will help people. It's a message that will resonate with people. It's written to decrease the stigma related to mental illness, to, written primarily for men who are struggling right now. It's written in layman's terms. It's written in short, easy to read chapters. And it's chock full of tips, tactics, and techniques to help those in their recovery and to maintain health and wellness. Okay, that, that is awesome. And Skip, there comes a part of my show, and I say this is the only part of the show that belongs to me, um, where the audience, we have listened and we need you to give back to us. Um, in different instances on the show, people come in and they tell me about a, a secret talent 
or a secret that they have never shared with the world. Mm-hmm. And there's so many different examples. Um, my example is I do not like the root vegetable beets. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm from I'm from Virginia and we eat a lot of vegetables. I'm solid, you know. Yeah, but, you're... but I will eat a parsnip, I will eat rhubarb, I will eat anything else, alfalfa grass, I will eat <laughs> the pyramid. But if you offer me beets in your house, I will leave your house, I'll get in my car, I will get on the plane, I'll leave, you know. And we won't talk anymore. And then when you correct the issue, I'll come back. But beets, it's not a texture thing. I don't even think it's a taste thing because I eat them sometimes. I eat them every year to see if I can change my mind about it. And it's just a no. But that's my secret. That's my secret. And I, I, it's not a secret anymore, obviously, now because I talk about it all the time. <laughs> but it's really that serious with me. Like, I mean, who eats parsnips and doesn't eat potatoes? <laughs> they're, oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, you know, they're, what's the difference? They're, really? they're kissing cousins. Hey. <laughs> yeah. But what can you really match up to a beet? Do you eat beets? Oh, yeah. I love beets. Oh, Lord. Won't be coming there's, to your house for dinner. There, there's not many things that I don't eat. Now, if it were Brussels sprouts. Oh, yeah. Brussels sprouts. Oh, oh. I, the smell. I think it's okay. the smell. That's If it weren't the smell, I think I could eat them just fine. Uh, it's, uh, that's that's the problem. I, I think that's the problem. Right. I love vegetables. Oh, I love vegetables. But you want a secret teller. I heard your podcast. I've okay. listened to your podcast. Okay. So I came prepared, Jay. Oh, you're the first one ever. Now, guys, let me give you the instruction list. All right, you, y'all won't see this video um, unless he allows it to be part of my documentary that I'm putting out after the season. But he went out here and literally grabbed something from in front of this computer, and he's about to show it to me. Now, I don't know if you can see this very well, but I write these things out. This was a inaugural reward okay, or award rather that I did for my wife and I entitled it the Zebedee Award. <laughs> As you recall, <clears throat> uh, James and, and John, the sons of Zebedee, yes. the sons of thunder, Jesus' disciples, left their nets and went to follow <laughs> Jesus. Well, who took up the slack? Who did that? Well, <laughs> probably their father. And so my wife has been, as she says, a slack picker-upper throughout her marriage. So she deserved the Zebedee Award, the first. And there's only been one other person so far inducted into this, and that was our good friend, Kelly Ristet. She and her husband uh, retired from the Army summer before last and so when they retired she received the second picking up the slack induction award. yes now let me now, describe this for, for the audience real fast oh wow he's got two of them and they're all this, framed now this is an acrostic and so i take the first letter in a word and then i ascribe a quality to it okay and so many cases, I take a name and ascribe that. And I have made these for people over the years and given these on occasions, on special occasions, or 
well, on special occasions, as special gifts to honor these individuals. Now, this was for my wife to honor her writing when she, as I recall, it was when she got her agent, when she finally landed an agent for her book. Because she's, oh, wow. she's, she's an amazing author. Now, she's the real writer in the family, I would say. <laughs> now, this, this says, so again, I'm going to see if I can get it angled in there. So, okay. so it, it says writer. Yeah, it says writer. And then. Would and, you read it to us? Yes. Sherry, my writer. Writer, so W, writer is she. R, really creative. I, interested in eavesdropping because she's always listening she she's an introvert as most writers are and so she just happens to listen <laughs> t true student of the craft e enters into the lives of her characters i have come to know her characters very well <laughs> r ready for the publication of many books. So again, and then I have a special note to my sweetheart at the bottom, but that's one of my secret talents or to those who have presented this, not so secret, but I love <laughs> doing this kind of thing and have done so over many years now. Okay, okay. Now, um usually uh, I always have different questions and things like that. That was very interesting. I'm glad you were prepared because that threw me for a loop. Ah! <laughs> and, and, and see, the thing is, it, it, like, like, and I'll say this on this podcast, um, this, me going into my third season, this is the successful season. Um, and obviously your episode will be between third and fourth because you're, because we met towards the middle, but I'm actually doing a docuseries. Hmm. Like where we're right here, Behind me, um, let's see, there's another, I keep phones, cameras, different things that are recording us. You're actually right now only, well, I'll show it to you after we're done talking. There's a TV behind us that has you on it. I call it my computer monitor, but it's just a little 40-inch TV that has you in the background right there. So um, you're a part of something and with, with this podcast, but you're part of something even bigger. Mm. You are what we call an influencer. Mm. So let me explain this influencer to you, and then you take it from here after I give it to you, okay? An influencer is somebody that doesn't know that they're doing something. Mm. Everyone in life helps and aids people, okay? We always do that. That's part of our human nature. Mm. When you influence, it has a broader scope. The things that you took from this podcast today, the morality. You didn't think too much about it. you having you passing on a morale code to people. All right, so that's your first part of an influencer. That's a new skill that you know of that you have. Being an influencer gives you abilities that you don't have all the time, but you will get together uh, in a, in a way like a, like with this morality thing. You'll take that from this day forward, and you will use this, mm. and you will help. But when you're helping someone else, the next person that uses your information becomes an influencer. Mm. So the way you carry yourself, the way you walk through your town, the way you go through your city, 
the way you go outside your home, you influence people. Hmm. Do you do you agree with this? Oh, absolutely, without without a doubt, Jr. Are, that that so, every go ahead. That that every encounter we have with people, we are either exuding the love of Christ or we are exuding something that is not kind, that is not gracious, that is harmful or toxic. So we can either bring kindness, that we can bring healing, that we can bring graciousness, that we can bring joy and patience towards others, or we can be ugly and toxic in our interactions with others. And so I try to go through life to bring the former, realizing that everybody is struggling with something. And I say to others that you don't know the story behind the story. And so be it, you know, the people that deliver my mail, the uh, people that pick up the trash, the delivery people, the clerk that I meet in the store, somebody I pass in a store, whomever it is that I come in contact with, the, the patients that I treat, the people I worked alongside with, it, it doesn't matter that even if they seemed sharp or ugly, try not to take that uh, personally, but not to respond in kind, but to be patient and to be kind to be gracious because you don't know the story behind the story. You don't know what they're going through. You don't know that maybe they have somebody that's critically ill or they had a family member that just died. Cause I was amazed how often I'd have a patient come in. We'd be talking and chitting and chatting, began this, the uh, visit. And only after we got partway into, cause I'd ask, how are you? What's going on? and begin my examination and only maybe partway through the visit would they disclose, oh, you know, my mother died or my father's in the hospital or I had a son who died or some other critical incident in their life that happened. And this type of thing, you know, it was, it was incredible to me how often it took a little bit for them to be comfortable to divulge that with me. Now, some of them know, but as we talk, we had that kind of rapport that when I'd ask, well, what's going on? That they could tell me that. Others, we had to ease into it. So that's why I say you don't know the story behind the story. And so I, I hope people can understand that, that we all struggle. We all have our own difficulties and understand that everybody has a story behind the story. Okay. And I like that. And I want to thank you for being on West Virginia Uncommonplace. And um, me and you have gotten a great report. And, and, I, and I like to tell us at the very end so people can understand these interactions. Um, when you seek out a guest or guest seeks you out, you talk in emails first. And I am the type of person that I stay professional throughout the email. And then we get on uh, camera the first five or 10 minutes, we, I think we had about a 15 minute conversation or so. We had a, a lengthy conversation. We, we uh, found common ground here and there. And I want to say out of all my guests, 
like just something about you. You got the same thing that I have. And it's that charismatic enigma. It's that polarizing figure. Because everybody has a has a, a luster to them. Hmm. But not everybody's going to polarize and be charismatic and have that enigma all in, in one. And you have that. Thank you. So, so one way I'm going to challenge you, like I challenge a few people, not everyone gets challenged this way. Because some episodes, I will not say this. You got a lot of knowledge out here. Why are you not doing a podcast? Hmm. But before hmm. you answer that, <laughs> I'm going to tell you a story. Real, I'm going to tell you a good story real quick before we get off here. All right. right. Uh, everyone in life wakes up at different times. Everyone has a different shift they work in life. Everyone has something going on. But the common thing that we have is in any day, we have a random amount of two hours. Me being a person that works any type of shift because of, of the need of my job. Most of the time I work a normal seven and three, never work through to 11 because I don't believe in that kind of thing. I don't even believe that's a, a good mindset. But anyway, between seven at night and 9 p.m. at night or 7 p.m. And, and 9 p.m., I have free time. I don't do anything at that time. I don't do anything extra. So my question to you is, when do you have free time in a day? And everybody has that two hour block and we're not counting lunch because that's something that we deserve. But... You have a two-hour block somewhere in life, so why aren't you doing a podcast? Hmm. Hmm. I guess I'd have to say fear. Fear? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I guess that's what it would boil down to, the sense that who, why, why would anybody want to listen to me? that what more could I bring with a regular podcast, things that aren't already being said out there that I need to have a podcast that would be something of value on a regular basis. I, I, I think that's what it is. Uh, Okay. That well, let me let me correct that. Really let, let me let me correct this to for you real quick. All right, the audience can't see you right now. You have a pair of glasses on right now. Could you remove those? All right. What do I look like to you now? What do what do I look? What do you look like to? What do I look like now? to you right now? You look like a happy guy. All right. You look like a guy who's enjoying himself. Okay. Now put your glasses back on real quick. Oh, they'll go back on. <laughs> All right, now you have your glasses back on and we both can see each other again, right? Yeah. Do your glasses give you a better perspective? A little bit. That things are sharper, yes. Okay, so you got a perspective. You have a perspective that's different from someone else's. You see me with one set of eyes and then you put on a, a, a corrected set of eyes in the opinion of the medical world and you, you see me different. Mm -hmm. Do you? Mm -hmm. So there, I just answered your question. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what that's what I like about this. You know, it's a it's always a challenge for someone to uh, to to not think about that perspective. You write a book that gives your perspective one time. Correct. Your perspective is ever changing. Mm. Are you going to write an anthology? I am going to write another book. 
Yes, I have a book in mind. The second book that I have in mind is entitled Wrestling Bullies is Not for Wimps. Okay. So you got another book, so there. You just told me you have another perspective outside of the perspective that you had before. So it sounds like you could do a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but once again, I definitely want to I, thank I, I, I feel I feel that half Nelson or that arm bar Arthur. on me here, JR. Oh, ooh. <laughs> now I'm trying I tell to fight you, it off. I'm trying, yeah. to, I'm trying to peel it off. I'm trying to work it off. <laughs> yeah, now I tell you, in practice, I, I'm cheap in practice. I would just try to do a quick head and arm and just, you know, I'm not even going to shoot in with this type of thing. <laughs> I'm just going to use my power, no technique, just my strength. And, yeah. <laughs> but once again, I want to thank you for being on West Virginia Commonplace. And I definitely would like you to come back. Well, because, thank you. Because here's some things that happen in life. All right, no single podcast will change your life completely, but you have an audience today that you'll carry with you from the show and you will garner more questions. Good. You have a second book coming out. Yes. It has totally different aspects to it. And we definitely want to hear that story. Wonderful. Okay. So once again, thank you for being on West Virginia Commonplace. Been my pleasure, JR. Thank you.